0: Folks, I'm going to just give you a statement, and you can agree, disagree, what have you, but I'm going to toss this out to you and say that we live in a morally chaotic society, it would seem in some ways, now more than ever. And I say in some ways because I'm sure every generation, going all the way back to biblical times, has had their... Their degree of moral chaos, but I know for us right now, we, we sense it greatly. We sense it deeply as believers. Gone are any sense of biblical values from really the fabric of our own country, it would seem. Our society is secularizing at an accelerated rate that I think we can just scarcely comprehend. We are in a time that seems to celebrate wickedness a time where what was wrong is right and where what was right is now wrong. We are in a time where to live a distinctly biblical life as a follower of Christ, especially out in the public eye, you will be like a salmon swimming upstream. And actually, it's worse than that, I would suggest to you, because our society here in the United States has started to persecute and ostracize Christians for their beliefs. One of the groups that has reflected this moral degradation is the entertainment industry, Hollywood, of which I made my living at for some twenty-plus years as an actor. Before God called me into full-time ministry, I'm very thankful that He has. Now I'm I will also stand here and say I love movies. I, there's television that I love. It's just when you turn it on these days, it seems that so much of it is is just kind of. ...down the tubes, if you will. And so I'm not trying to just completely put down the whole entertainment industry. We live in the entertainment... Well, you live in the entertainment capital of the world. I live in God's country right now. So... (laughs) But you live here. And I know there are many people in this church that are a part of the entertainment industry... ...and praise the Lord for believers in the entertainment industry. But the moral decay in Hollywood... I would say to you, it never really bothered me until I became a believer which was about two-thirds of the way through my career. But once that happened, I slowly saw how my Christian faith would dictate the kinds of parts that I would take. And, and, And frankly, the kinds of parts that I felt comfortable accepting became fewer and far between. Now, there were some interesting things that I learned about Christians in Hollywood at that time. I was kind of, uh, while I was in seminary, um, trying to see if there were other Christian groups, you know, and, and ministries within the context of of Hollywood. And so I became aware of a few things. Um, I was, at the time, doing some acting on the side to help pay the bills while I was in seminary, uh, mainly commercial work that kind of uh, allowed me to still go to school and pay the bills at home. And one of the things that I was curious about were, were there Christians in Hollywood? If so, how many? And and I discovered that, yes, indeed, there are. There are believers in Hollywood. But I would say to you that a lot of them are just flat out scared, maybe nervous about their faith. They are scared to stand up for their faith because they know that Hollywood typically is an ultra left-wing liberal bunch that don't usually take kindly to biblical values. While I was on one of these commercial sets, while I was, again, in seminary, I had a stack of books with me, because in seminary, you're reading all kinds of books. And, uh, and I had one book open, and I'm reading it while I was waiting, you know, for the shot to be set up and whatnot, and it was a, a book by John MacArthur that we had to read for school. And, um, and at lunchtime, a fellow who was the camera assistant comes up to me, kind of pulls me aside, gets in kind of the hushed tone, and he says, now, can I ask you a question? I said, Sure. He said, that book that you were reading earlier, it said John MacArthur. Is that John MacArthur as in Grace to you and 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 preacher John MacArthur? And I said, Yeah. And he says, Are you a Christian? I said, Yeah. He grabs my hand, starts pumping it up and down. He's like, Man, me too. Me too. And and it was like, you know, being in the, the desert and 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 I guess finding water when two believers, you know, might might come together ...on any sort of a film set. And that was really striking to me. It was really striking. At that point, of course, I I didn't care about living out my faith in Hollywood... ...because that wasn't where the Lord was leading me. And so I was much more open about it then. But friends, in today's world of social and moral chaos... ...the stakes are even higher for Christians, it would seem. It, it doesn't help when some churches and pastors are now also reinterpreting the Bible... ...to include things, say, once forbidden... On the flip side, we could consider even some of the mainstream leaders. I'm not saying evangelical, but uh, we had the Pope visit the United States just over a year ago. And if you noticed, while he was here, he avoided anything that might be deemed controversial like the plague. Uh, and, And I would say to you this, do you know what else he avoided? In the first ever papal address to a joint session of Congress, he refused to say the name Jesus. Not once. Not once. And yet even in these morally confused times, you and I, we are still called by Jesus to be his disciples. We are still called to be his followers. We are still to to carry our cross. We are to follow him even in the midst of this craziness that we see out there in the world. And so at that point, we might go, okay, yes, I agree. But really, what does that mean? What does it mean? And this is what we're going to find out today. And I I will tell you up front, it, it will not be the popular thing to do out there in the world. And it won't be easy. So with that, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Brock read the passage earlier. It was great. I'm glad he did. Just to get our minds thinking Luke chapter fourteen. We're going to start in verse twenty-five. I just finished uh preaching the book of Luke to my congregation up in Weaverville. It uh it was uh five and a half years. We had 185 messages, and uh now we're moving on to something else. I think we're gonna go on to first John and Second John and Third John. So this was uh this was a favorite uh message of mine and, and know this, that before it gets to you, it's had to go through my own heart and mind, and and uh, and the Spirit, I pray, is doing its work on myself, as well as all of your hearts and minds. So, our text this morning comes today uh, towards the latter part of Jesus' ministry, where he is working his way to Jerusalem for the last time, where he knows that he will be put to death. Throughout his journey, he has taught the disciples much about discipleship, and he continues with this theme in, in our text this morning. And as he teaches them, and consequently all of us, what, what we find here is a sort of a test. It's a test of true discipleship and what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so from our scripture this morning, Jesus will present to you four ways to know if you are a true disciple of his We'll start in verse 25 with just a short phrase. Now, large crowds were going along with him. We'll just pause there for just just a brief moment because there is something significant about the fact that Luke mentions here large crowds going along with Jesus. We sometimes think that large crowds going along with a person means that they are supporters, which could be. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. You have to remember, though, that people followed Jesus for a whole host of reasons. For instance, some believed him to be a miracle worker. You know, they saw all the incredible, incredible uh, signs and wonders that he did. Some were following because they believed him to be the long-awaited Jewish Savior known as the Messiah. Some also followed because of his teaching. The scripture tells us that people were amazed at his teaching because it was with authority. Things like repentance, faith, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, belief in in his good news, gospel, uh, what God expected of his followers and how to be a kingdom citizen. Fourthly, uh, the Jewish leaders and Pharisees, they were also following, but they were following for a different reason. They wanted to stop him. They wanted him gone, done away with. Then, of course, you had disciples. You had the twelve disciples Of course, with the exception of Judas, who were true believers and following him for those reasons. And then you had the disciples that were outside the the group of 12 who called themselves disciples. But when push came to shove, many of them fell away and abandoned Christ and his teachings. We see in John chapter 6 verse 66 after Jesus presented some teachings about himself being the bread of life that were hard for his followers to to swallow, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So, again, all of this to say, uh, there were large crowds going along with Christ and and even many that claimed to be his followers, but not all were true disciples. So, So Jesus stops the crowd. He stops them. And takes the opportunity to point this out to them, and in so doing, he challenges them to assess their own relationship to him, which you are now invited to do as well. So here is the first test question of true discipleship. Number one, is Jesus your highest priority? Is he your highest priority? Look back with me at verses 25, 26. Again, large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And you go, whoa, wait a minute. Say what? What did you just say, Jesus? Because, I mean, come on, that sounds that sounds awfully harsh. I mean, I, I thought you were all about love. You know, I mean, are you really, really saying that I should hate my relatives, even my spouse and my kids? I mean, come on, what gives? Well, go ahead and, and bookmark here uh, Luke 14, so we'll keep coming back. But um, turn over to Matthew 10. Matthew 10. Put my bookmark in there. Starting in Verse 34. <clears throat> Matthew 10, verses 34 to 39. Now here Jesus is teaching his 12 disciples, again, specifically on discipleship, when he says something very similar. This is Matthew 10, beginning in 34. Verse 34, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Uh, in Luke 12, it talks about uh, division. He came to bring division. He says, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Then, friends, here comes our, our explanation for our text in verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, if you are one that likes to write or underline or circle, have at it on that word more. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So, did you get that? That's the point, right? That that's the point that Jesus is getting at—that there will be division over the gospel. We see that much in our world today, do we not? And then the simple truth is, there will be. Division over the gospel, even in some of your families. And friends, the reason for this is because the gospel affects a person's most most basic views regarding the age-old questions of the meaning of life. The gospel shapes and molds a person's worldview, what they think and believe and why. It is part of their identity. It is part of who they are. It demonstrates that they believe in a creator God of the universe, a creator God of the earth, a creator God of of the people. And because of this, the people are submissive to God simply because he is their creator And, and not just God But the Son, because the only way to God is through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas an atheistic worldview of God says, well, says that there is no God. The Big Bang and evolution would be the order of the day, and because of this, we are all here by accident. Therefore, there is no creator that any of us have to answer to. We are all on our own, we answer to no one except ourselves. And and what's funny about this is, is, ask an atheist where their moral compass comes from. Because everyone has one. Everyone has one. And it has to come from somewhere. But see, that atheistic worldview would say, there is no morality. There is no such thing. You see, morality, though, friends, has to be rooted in something. It has to be rooted in a soul of which purely physiological creatures, the atheist's view... Produced by accident? Couldn't possibly have. Couldn't possibly have. So yes, the differences that people will have over the gospel, they will always be extreme. They will always be divisive, even amongst families. And and again, many of us have had this experience. Now, does this mean that we back away from the truth of the gospel? Because it might divide? No, absolutely not. Does this mean that we don't share the gospel with our unbelieving, even antagonistic family members? Absolutely not. I mean, what's the only other option but that these loved ones would one day die and wake up in the pit of hell? That should be a sobering thought for us. All of us to say, Jesus has to be, he must be your highest priority. Even when there's division, there's still a way to speak the truth in love, right? The truth in love. We don't have to be antagonistic. We can still speak the truth. We can do it in love, but he must be your number one love. You must stand up for Christ. Christ is making it clear that your loyalty must be first and foremost to him it has to be. Your love for him must be greater than your love for your family. It must be greater than your love for your job. It must be greater than your love of career, school, sports, hobbies, and for me, yes, even fly fishing in the Trinity helps. It's got to be. Money, possessions, I mean, you fill in the blank, right? Whatever those things that take priority in your life. And if it's not you can't be his disciple. You can't. Friends, the scriptures teach that salvation and being a disciple are intrinsically linked. The whole point of being saved is to become Jesus' disciple, to become his follower. And and that's what the great commission of of getting the gospel out to the world is all about. Matthew 18, 19 to 20. I'm sure many of you know this passage, but it doesn't say this. It doesn't say, go therefore and get people saved. Get them to merely say they believe in the facts of Jesus dying and resurrecting or being resurrected for them. No, what does it say? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo I am with you always even to the end of the age. So being a disciple being a follower is absolutely a part of salvation. You can't separate the two. You can't you really to be saved is to be a disciple. It is to be A follower. And if you are not a true disciple of Christ, your love and loyalty needs to be to Him above all others. I I don't know if I said if you're not, but if you are a true disciple of Christ, if you are a true disciple, your love and your loyalty needs to be to Him. He is to be your highest priority. All right, question number two. Test question two. Do you carry your own cross? Do you carry your own cross? Look at verse 27. We're back in uh, Luke here. We can flip back. Chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus already said this back in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. We're going to go ahead and turn there. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. <clears throat> Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Now he is alone with his disciples. He has just shared with them in verse... 22, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Which brings us to 23, where he says, or it says, And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, Back then, the people that he was speaking with would have understood the cross-reference because he just explained his upcoming death, which would have been understood to be by crucifixion. This coming after Jesus refers to anyone that would follow Jesus, that would follow his ways. It means they would acknowledge Jesus. They would acknowledge him as their teacher. They would live in obedience to him. In other words, this is discipleship. It's discipleship. And it's summarized here in three ways according to this Luke 9 passage. The first is by self-denial. Self-denial. You must deny yourself. Okay, well the next question is, that's well and good. Deny myself what? The context indicates the issue is a, a salvific one. It's an issue of salvation. Verse 24 says that to gain life, meaning of the eternal variety, one must give it up. As one pastor has said, to be a follower of Christ Jesus is to disown one's natural, depraved, sinful self. It is to give up all dependence on and confidence in one's self and one's works to save, end quote. It's basically saying no to sin and yes to Jesus, right? Pretty simple in that sense. Needless to say, at the same time, self-denial can be very difficult. Friends, nowhere in the Bible does it say it's easy to be a Christian, right? In fact, just the opposite. Luke 13, uh, Jesus teaches that the way to salvation is through a big, wide, giant, monstrous castle door. No, the narrow door, right? The narrow door, which he says many will seek to enter and not be able. In 1 Peter 4.18, Peter asks the rhetorical question, which is uh, actually a quotation from Proverbs. He says, and... If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So again, nowhere does the scripture teach that once you become a Christian, it gets any easier. You know, and just to go back to my, my career in Hollywood for a moment, let me tell you, for the longest time, I mean, there was, there was no self-denial for Jesus. And I would say, even once I became a believer in the beginning, uh, you know, still I just took whatever kind of of, of roles that I wanted. Um, when I when I first became a Christian, I, I did this, and I think maybe. Maybe some of you may have had this experience where I became a Christian, but I didn't understand that becoming the Christian was the top of the pyramid. Uh, becoming a Christian was just kind of um, one compartment of many. I had my Christianity, I had my job, my career, uh, I had my you know hobbies, and everything was just kind of on the on the same uh, playing field there. And so I was able to justify doing ungodly roles and movies and television and whatnot because I would reason that's well that's different that's just that's my job, it's not being a, being a Christian it's just it's just my job it's just what I do, you know and and again just no self denial it wasn't until uh, later on when the Lord really started growing me that the self denial kind of uh, kicked in there. Now also in regard to discipleship along with self denial there's this issue of cross bearing. Cross-bearing. The disciples, again, understood the cross meant death. It meant death by crucifixion. Death in the most torturous, agonizing, even humiliating way. Criminals sentenced to crucifixion had to carry their own cross to the site of their crucifixion to show the cross-bearer's submission to the government. In Jesus' case, he was an innocent man who would suffer rejection, public shame, humiliation, and death, which brings about another nuance to cross-bearing, our cross-bearing. We, too, will innocently suffer these things. You and I, friends, if we are, if we are standing firm in our faith, we will be rejected. We will be shamed, and we will be humiliated, and not for something that we did wrong but for the cause of Christ. Matthew Henry said, Christ's followers cannot expect better treatment in the world than their master had. That's the truth. So friends, to to take up one's cross as a Christian means you are no longer living for yourself. And this concept reinforces self-denial and submission to God. It means you have a willingness to endure even daily. All that Jesus endured, the hostility, and the rejection, and the hatred, and the reproach, and the shame, and the persecution, and the suffering, and and even death, if that's what God would call you to. It is said that uh, when the knights of King Arthur's court returned from the field of battle... If they did not bear in their bodies some scar of the battle, they were thrust forth before the king with the command, Go get your scars. Now I can't really say that I have... Had many serious cross bearing scars inflicted upon me, even as an actor, I was only a believer for again maybe the latter third of my career. Uh, so I will just relate to you someone else that I know of that had some scars, and it was interesting to watch him go through this but our our oldest son, when we were up in uh, in Weaverville, he went to a uh, public high school, Trinity High, and he was taking a bunch of the the AP classes and whatnot. And so they there was a, a group of them that were uh, all taking the same classes and together. And the teacher, uh, though a very learned man, was an atheist and, and often brought in uh, discussions of the culture and social issues and whatnot. And uh, praise be to God, you know, our son was willing to, to stand up for the things that he believed in and not really realizing what was going to happen but boy man they they came after him they came the the teacher not so much actually but the other students just kind of let him have it and it was interesting because i know he wrote on on uh, shared this on his um his application to go to the masters uh university because i think um in that sense he was just looking forward to having just a little uh peacefulness of being around other like-minded young people versus just the opposite. The question is, is what will your cross-bearing scars be? Or maybe what have they been? Because maybe you have already been inflicted with some scars. But are you willing to endure what Jesus endured? That is the question for all of us. Now, thirdly, carrying your own cross and coming after Jesus means obedience, obedience. It stands to reason that as one practices self-denial in submitting themselves to Christ and one takes up their cross of suffering on behalf of Christ, well, then obedience is already in effect right it's it's going to be in some sense second nature jesus says in his sermon on the mount that only those who do the will of his father will enter into heaven and the same sermon in luke 6:46 has jesus asking why do you call me lord lord and do not do what i say the implied answer is well if you really believe jesus to be your lord then you will obey him right John 14 verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in chapter 15 verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Then verse 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now in that sense, it couldn't be more clearer. That for the disciple of Jesus, for those who who would follow him, must be committed in their obedience to him. And and really, this is is the kicker for a lot of us, isn't it? Obedience to Christ. People don't want to deny themselves anything. We don't want to deny ourselves that which pleasures us. Oh, we certainly don't want to suffer, let alone for someone maybe we can't see or touch. and, and, And people definitely don't want somebody else telling them what to do. I mean, this is this is people's rejection of Christ, right? That's explained in Romans chapter 1. And here's what they don't get. They don't get that to be a follower of Jesus and to do these things, to deny themselves, to carry their cross, and to live in obedience to Jesus will actually be such a blessing to them. I mean, it will be of such tremendous benefit in this life. I mean, certainly the life to come, right? We want to have that heavenly perspective, but in this life as well. We forget that in 1 John 5, 3, we are promised, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Because we get in that mindset, don't we? That his commandments are a burden. Oh, I don't really want to do that. I'm going to go kicking and screaming. But it's not a burden. It is meant to bring great joy and blessing to your lives. Charles Spurgeon said, There are no crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers here below. Bear your cross. The third question in our discipleship test this morning is this. Have you counted the costs of following Jesus? Have you counted the costs of following Jesus? We'll go back to uh, Luke 14, picking up in verse 28. Jesus says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, Oh, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. Now just to kind of summarize these, Jesus's point is that for anything, of anything of importance, you count the cost. You must count the cost. I remember in our family's life, one of the first times that we counted the cost over something um, was Julie and I. Um, we had had one child, I think we're on to second child, and um, and it was her desire, she was still working at the time, and it was her desire to be a stay-at-home mom. And so we had to count the costs, because my job being what it was, you know, it was great when I was working, but you know, a month goes by, six months, even a year, and you haven't worked, and that makes things a little difficult, so we had to count the cost of if we could do this, if we could. And in the end, we stepped out in faith. It was great. She read this Reader's Digest article that actually dealt with um, uh, stay-at-home moms and assessing the cost of actually going to work, whether it be daycare or whether it be wardrobe or whether it be gas and just your time and all that. And she's like, yeah, well, definitely not worth it, you know. But we had to count the cost. Another time that I was encouraged to count the cost was when I knew that God was calling me into the ministry. There was one specific day when Pastor Brock, we were both in seminary together. He was a little ahead of me. And um, and uh, actually, I'm sorry, it was before I was in seminary. Brock was in seminary, invited me to go to seminary with him for a day. And I thought, well, okay, Why? You know, that's... <laughs> and I think he saw something going on in my own heart that I didn't quite understand yet. I go to seminary with him. By lunchtime, we're at the Del Taco across the street, and I'm blubbering. I'm just bawling. I can't even eat. I don't even know hardly why I'm crying. I started crying in chapel, and I just kept crying throughout the day. And it was because I just knew. I knew at that that day that God was calling me into full time ministry. And so I'm standing out after class with Brock. And I'm like, What do I do? He goes, you go home and you talk to Julie. <laughs> we'll see if this is, a, you know, if a, your, your call to ministry will be affirmed here. And he says, and you two talk and you count the cost. You have to count the cost. What's it going to mean for your family? What's it going to mean to give up the entertainment industry? What's it going to mean, you know, money wise and all that, all that stuff. But we have to do these things. Did you know that your salvation comes with a cost? Oh, sure, there's an enormous cost that was paid by Christ for your salvation. But yes, there's also a cost to you. And I'm not saying that you work for your salvation, so don't get me wrong here. But by accepting God's free gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, you are making the decision to be his disciple you are making a decision to follow him and that comes with a cost friends here on this earth and it usually shows up in the form of persecution of one kind or another for 2nd uh, Timothy 3:12 says indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ will be what persecuted persecuted christian author uh, benjamin e fernando from Sri Lanka, has rightfully said, quote, persecution is one of the surest signs of the genuineness of our Christianity. Persecution is one of the surest signs of the genuineness of our Christianity. And frankly, let's let's be honest here, the heat is, is starting to get turned up out there in the world towards Christians. I mean, from cake bakers and florists and photographers who have been Fined and lost businesses for refusing to participate in same sex weddings, which you think is really an oxymoron because, in God's eyes, there is no such thing. To a county clerk who is jailed for denying to issue marriage licenses to same sex couples, to, to states not wanting, or states, excuse me, wanting to stand up for the rights of its citizens and to not have to have them share a restroom with a member of the opposite sex. I mean, pastors in other countries have already been charged with hate crimes for preaching and teaching the Bible, and people have been beheaded for being a Christian. We see that with ISIS. So let's not make any bones about it. The cost is high. The cost is high. And yes, even here in our own country. Uh, Atlanta Fire Chief Kevin Cochran, you might have heard about this, was fired by the mayor of Atlanta, I think this is over, just over a year ago, because of his personal views about biblical sexual morality that he expressed in a Christian men's devotional book written on his personal time, where the issue of biblical sexuality was briefly mentioned in the book's 162 pages, he was never accused of expressing these views while on the job, proselytizing, or of doing anything that could be construed as being discriminatory. But even after a city investigation showed that Cochran did not discriminate against anyone, the mayor fired him anyway, citing as his basis, ironically, the need to tolerate diverse views. Have you counted the costs? Are you ready? I mean, buckle up, fasten those seatbelts, because it might get bumpy. Because you will be challenged to stand up for biblical truth. Whatever the cost, even your livelihood could be threatened. Now the fourth test question of discipleship is this. Is following Jesus worth more to you than the pleasures of the world? Is following Jesus worth more to you than the pleasures of the world? This we'll see in verse 33. Back in Luke fourteen, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And he go, oh, okay, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are we to take this literally? I mean, what about the what about the followers of Jesus, right? Who had houses and and maybe some money and and who would often bankroll some of the ministry, like before in our text? Jesus is making a point. He's making a point. Again, it's about self-denial. The parables of the hidden treasure and the costly pearl explain this well. Just listen. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has. Sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had. And he bought it. You might remember the rich young ruler who in his mind had done everything he needed in order to inherit eternal life. Until Jesus said, well, there's one more thing that he needed to do to demonstrate his being a true disciple of Jesus. Do you remember what it was? He had to sell all that he had. He had to give it to the poor and follow Jesus. And the man went away sad because he was very rich. Jesus knew that that was that one heart issue that was preventing him from following him. And you see, part of the problem of the desire for the things of the world is our love and pursuit of them. And how just so easily this can just take us over. And again, please don't misunderstand. This isn't about being rich or having big houses or fancy cars or jewelry or other toys. The poorest person in the world can sinfully pursue possessions and wealth. And not just possessions, but power, status, prestige. I mean, you name it. Whatever the world has to offer that sinfully appeals to you. You might remember the seed, the seed that fell amongst the thorns. This is the person who hears God's word, but quote, the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Sometimes people ask me if I miss Hollywood. And and I will always tell them, you know, I love the art of acting. I love the art of filmmaking. But the Lord also revealed to me that there was much of it that was really just about satisfying my my own worldly pleasures as well. And in fact, one of the things that the Lord changed in my heart as he as he called me into full-time ministry was was this understanding that if someday I would be standing before the Lord and he were to ask me, So, Jay, what did you do with the time that I gave you down there on planet earth. And, and, and I thought to myself, what would I do in that situation? I mean, am I going to recite my resume to the Lord? Well, oh God, let me tell you, man, I did that movie, I did that movie, and that TV show, and this thing, and blah, 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 blah. I thought, no. No, that's, that's stuff really to be burnt in the fire. You know, unless there's that gospel opportunity or a chance to meet that camera assistant, another believer on, on one of those deals. But for the most part, I knew for me it was, it was tough to be burnt in the fire. Rather, I, I know that I want to hear the Lord say to me, well done, good and faithful slave. That's what I wanted to hear. And so there were things that I needed to give up that I might hear that. And friends, we always need to keep our priorities straight, don't we? we? We need to seek after heavenly treasure, heavenly treasure that will last for all eternity. So you've been given a test. What happens if you fail the test? What happens if you fail the test? Look at verse 34 of Matthew 14. Jesus says, therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil. Just let me interject. Meaning it, it, it can't even act as a fertilizer anymore. Or for the manure pile. Meaning because it will never decompose. It is whoosh, thrown out. Thrown out. In other words, if you claim to be salt that is a disciple of Jesus, but have failed this four-question test, then you would have to ask yourself if you are really a true follower. As you have no flavor. And therefore, if you have no flavor, you have no ability to be useful. In fact, you are not even good to fertilize soil with or, or the manure pile because you will never decompose. And those who masquerade as true disciples, but who are really imposters, offering nothing of value to Christ or his kingdom, should simply be thrown out. Now, the other option is that you are a true believer, but you're a true believer in sin if you have failed in any of these points. For that, you need to confess, you need to repent, you need to return back to the Lord. Lastly, look at the last part of verse 34 he who has ears to hear let him hear friends there's there's steep consequences for those who masquerade as disciples don't wear the costume be the real deal of course it all starts with knowing Christ it starts with coming to that that understanding in your heart of hearts your soul your your being, that you are a sinner who needs a Savior. And the Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That if you would repent of your sin, put your faith, your trust, your hope in Christ, and Christ alone, that He went to the cross on your behalf, that He shed His blood for you, that He literally became sin for you. God's wrath was poured out on him for you. He died, was buried three days before resurrecting from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering hell, conquering Satan. And in that, we know that we have the promise of not just forgiveness of sins, but of eternal life as well. That as Jesus lives, so you and I, as believers, will also live. Why? Because of God's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting, eternal life So repent of your sin, place your faith in Christ, become a true disciple of his, ready to work hard for his kingdom and to receive his blessings, the marvelous benefits of walking with him, following him. And and if you believe yourself to be a true Christian, but not passing the test, friend, confess, repent, and receive his blessings. And if you know yourself to be a disciple, a follower of Christ, you have passed the test. Maybe it's time to ask how you can excel still more. How can I excel still more, Lord? Maybe disciple and encourage another brother or sister in their walk. So again, our questions, is Jesus your highest priority? Do you carry your own cross? Have you counted the cross of following Christ? Is following Jesus worth more to you than the pleasures of the world? Billy Graham once said, Jesus invited us not to a picnic, but to a pilgrimage. Not to a frolic, but to a fight. He offered us not an excursion, but an execution. Our Savior said that we would have to be ready to die to self sin, and the world. Salvation is free, but discipleship costs everything we have. Probably works better with the southern accent, huh? But let me just add, friends, it is also worth more than everything we have. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the morning and thank you for these truths from your word Father, these are good questions for all of us to be asking ourselves and just kind of assessing where we're at with you. Certainly, Father, if there is any here this morning that first and foremost need to repent and believe, put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would do so right now, even as we're praying, God, that they would speak to you, Lord, in their heart and just confess their sin and trust in Jesus, Lord. And their desire to be saved, which means to be his disciple, to be his follower. And for the rest of us, Lord, that know we are his disciple and follower, may we excel still more. And Father, may we now look to seek how we can help others in their walk with you. We pray this all in your son's name. And everybody said, Amen.